Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine, the first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you hunt or fish Alabama or in the deep south, you know that it's different down here. Spawning seasons, patterns, food sources, they ain't the same down here as in other parts of the country. At Great Days Outdoors Magazine, Southern Outdoors writers pick the brains of the best Southern hunters and anglers and give you the best how-to, where-to, and when-to articles, along with so much, much more. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors Magazine subscription and become a better Southern Outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors Magazine can be found at your local Barnes & Nobles, Books a Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rule King, Bass Pro Shops, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. I'm Brian Sin, host of your show today. Glad y'all are joining us on the Alabama Freshwater Fisher Report. Got a great show for you today. Looking forward to it. And, uh, man, we've got some, uh, got a little break in the rain around here. Of course, it's been pretty warm. Definitely, definitely August in Alabama. So uh, you got to hunt a shade tree in the middle of the day sometimes around here. That's for sure. But, hey, we got a great report for you today. So let's get right to it. For the first segment of the day, it's one of my favorite segments we do every month. And it's the Management Minute with Norman Latona from uh, Southeastern Pond Management. Norman, how you doing, my friend? Doing great, man. Like you, trying to stay cool and dry. I hear you, man. I hear you. Well, you you headed to a a place where you're not going to be able to stay cool, but hopefully you'll be able to stay dry a little bit. That's right. Down in the Alabama Gulf Coast, one of my favorite places in the world. Yeah, you're going to go down and do a little snapper fishing? That's the plan. That's the plan. It's still open probably the last weekend. We'll see. Supposed to be some beautiful weather. So I imagine a bunch of snapper caught this weekend and probably finish this off for the season but i'm just glad to have one more shot at them heck yeah man well i hope you get your fair share of them this weekend and i, I may just show up and end up in the boat with you we'll see how that goes but uh let's get to the management minute segment here and i think what we really a good topic for today we've had a lot of questions surrounding this to relay back to you it's a question that i'm sure you get all the time from your clients but let's talk about building a bass lake or building a pond or a lake on your place i think that would be a really good topic and, and very informative for our listeners so if i'm a guy i've got some property and I'm like, you know what, I, I really, I'd love to have a pond on my, I'd love to have a place where I could go out there and, and, and bass fish and maybe grow some trophy bass, but I don't really know where to start. So where do I start? Obviously, I need to call you, but wh- where, how do we start that process? Yeah, so, I, and we get this a lot, uh, obviously, and it's such a loaded topic that it'd be impossible for us to cover everything related to pond construction, building lakes. But the good news is it's a pretty easy recipe to get started. And the way we look at it is like this. You know, not every piece of property is created equal in terms of ability to hold a lake, to sustain a a, a fishing lake. And there's several key things that we need to take a look at. And we refer to it as our site assessment, feasibility study, kind of a approach to it and so brian first and foremost we want to find out where the property is and preferably on a map and where we can pull satellite images and topographic maps and soil maps and really our first step is to kind of look at the property and a potential site that way before we even set foot on the property and we can tell a whole lot about a about a site just doing that so that's our starting point. And then once we get past that point, if we still meet the standard and we say, well, it looks like there's reasonable feasibility of, of, of constructing the lake, then we'll take a visit and we'll go out and confirm what we saw on the maps and take some soil samples and, and do some surveying and, and, and walk and make sure that the topo maps and the actual property meet up. So, you know, really the starting point is call us and say, hey, I've got a piece of property that I think I can build a lake on. 
here's a map, here's a topo, take a look at it, and we'll kind of direct you from there. Yeah, and and you know when uh, in doing my my land real estate sales and lots of times I I have somebody in the truck or I'm showing somebody a piece of property and they're like, man, I, I really would love you know I like this place. You think I could put a lake on it? And you know me being not knowing what I'm talking about half the time, you know I'm like, well, there's a little creek down here and uh, you could probably damn that up. It's, it may be a good place, but there's a lot more to it than, than me just, <laughs> you know, that's there's, yes, if there's a, if there's some ravines and there's some, some hills and there's a, some small creeks that run into it. I mean, is that kind of a first good sign that, Hey, look, you got a water source coming in here. It may be a good opportunity for a place to build upon. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, obviously you got to have a water supply. I mean, that's one of the keys. Uh, you know, we tell folks all the time, look around you. Look particularly above you and below you within a drainage. You know, look on a map. Maybe you know your neighbors. Maybe you know the area well enough to know, are there other ponds around, particularly above you or below you in the same kind of drainage area? And that's a real key indicator, particularly about whether or not the soils are conducive, whether you got adequate watershed and but definitely, you know, having adequate water is obviously a key. Having the proper soils is obviously a key. And, and those are some of the things that we look at at the very, very beginning. Yeah, two questions right here. And, and, and both these questions are questions I've wanted to ask you at different times on the show, but we just kind of hasn't been on the topic we've talked about. But number one, can you have too much water flow? into your pond and let me tell you the reason i'm asking that question i go back to my my good friend who who built uh, a pond and he had and i mean his pond filled up a 17 acre lake i believe it was 17 12 17 somewhere in there he had a pretty major water source coming into his lake and, and he had the adequate piping uh in the spillway to 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 handle the water that was coming in but he had so much fresh water coming in that that he felt like that it was really hard to keep the the fertilization rate i mean he had to fertilize like a lot um but is there ever a time when you look at it and you go okay that's too much fresh water coming in no 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 doubt you you do we do run into that and 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 that can be can become such a problem that it again it we look at a site and say it's just not feasible, uh, both in terms of can we even handle the water, you know, I mean, what's it going to take to handle this water? Because you got to be able to not only impound the water, but you've got to create, you got to create spillway systems that are capable of shedding the excess water. So right. sounds like your buddy, and I think we've talked about it before, accomplished that, but then he's got so much water coming through, he's handling the water, but he but he really has very little control over the water in terms of building up fertility and creating good habitat for fish to grow in. So, yeah. uh, you know, he's probably on the fringe of what we would say is, is, is a reasonable place to build a fishing pond anyway. Now, there are some things that we can do to adjust when we have really heavy watershed. And it's not a, a real uncommon issue to run into, Brian. There are some things we can do, uh, not the least of which is there are times when we can divert some of the water. You know, we can manipulate the watershed and, and push some of the water around the pond. And, and, but that can be expensive and, and difficult and in some cases virtually impossible. In terms of what is too much water, so looking at it from a perspective of best management practices, we like to see a ratio of watershed to impounded area somewhere between 10 to 12 to 1 and maybe upwards of 30 to 1, meaning we might have 15 acres of watershed for every acre of, of impoundment. So if we're going to if we're gonna impound 10 acres, maybe we've got 150 acres, 200 acres of watershed. And that generally is, is the ideal range, okay? So when we get much below that, we begin to be concerned that we're either not going to fill the lake up very quickly, and, and moreover, we're not going to be able to keep it full. Okay, we're going to have these bad fluctuations. Water level is going to drop when we get into these droughts. It's going to take a long time to fill it up. Or the extreme you're talking about, where 
every time it rains, we flush all the nutrients and all the good stuff in the water right out the spillway. So you just have to kind of evaluate each site. Every every site is unique and kind of get a handle on what you're dealing with. But that's part of that feasibility study is we look at water source, we look at watershed area, we can calculate that fairly easily with a topo map, and then we obviously eventually get out on site and verify that what we're seeing on the map is actually what's there on the ground. There you go. All right, so let's say that I've come out to a, to a property, we've identified it, yes, we can feasibly put a five, six, eight acre lake, whatever it may be in this area. So now I'm sure there has to be a lot of conversation with that landowner at that point of what what do you want to achieve here? Are you wanting to strictly grow trophy bass? Or are you wanting something? I mean, kind of where does the conversation go at that point? Yeah, so definitely the owner user objectives are utmost importance. I mean, we we have lakes, some that we take care of and help folks with and that don't even do any fishing in them, Brian. They, they use them for swimming and kayaking and canoeing, and they don't really care much about the fish. We've got lakes where they create beachfront, river gravel all down on the bottom in large areas so they can wade around and, and play out in the water. We've got lakes that have been built, uh, private lakes, you know, been, that are built to be ski lakes, uh, you know, where they're built in such ways to minimize wave action and suppress waves and, and, and make it more conducive to, to running a ski boat around and skiing, but slalom courses in. And, and then most obviously, the vast majority of the folks that we deal with are looking to create a, a great fishery. And so, sure, there are differences, uh, and, and, we, and we like to know those things at the onset, because there are differences in how you go about designing and constructing a lake based on how you're planning to use the lake. Sure, sure. and that, that makes total sense. And, you know, for the purposes probably of most of our listeners, it being a fishing report, you know, I, I think it'd be safe to say the majority of the people that will listen to the show are, are probably looking at potentially having a, a that they can fish in and grow some trophy bass in. So let's just kind of run with that scenario. Obviously, when you when you look at a, a topo map, a lot of these things that you'll identify as far as how deep your pond dam, how tall your pond dam needs to be, how far across it needs to be, all those kind of things, I'm assuming, will definitely come into play. Uh, but if we're, you know, if we're looking at, okay, we're building a, a trophy bass lake here, how deep? Are, are you wanting to start off with that? I mean, when you're looking at it, you're going, okay, the deepest part of this lake is X, uh, and kind of go from yeah. there. So the site, each site's unique, and the site's going to dictate to a large extent maximum water depth, to some extent minimum water depth, average water depth. Okay? The good news is this. Bass and other fish that we typically stocked into these farm ponds are, are really adapted, so they'll survive and, in fact, Thrive in a in a wide range of conditions. What we tend to look at more than more than making the lake fish friendly is making it fisherman friendly. Okay, so bass, for example, they'll spawn in three feet of water. They'll spawn in twenty three feet of water, depending on the conditions that are available to them. bluegill. Same way. What we try to do is look at a site and say, what can we do to introduce contour and uh, basin contour and and habitat and structure and various other components that will attract and concentrate fish into areas that we can then go target for, for angling. Fish that's ability. really what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Yeah. yeah, it's not necessarily about growing the fish as much as it is about catching the fish. and that, At least that's our perspective. So with all that in mind, there are some, some best management practices that we try to put into place. Things like spillway design, okay, things like minimum water depth, things like habitat, okay, other things like access, you know, shoreline access, boat access, things that maybe folks might not think about when they think about building a lake. And obviously, we've seen lots and lots and lots of them, and 
And so we naturally think about all those sorts of things. Typically, if you have a site that is conducive to building a lake, i.e. you have adequate soils, you've got adequate topography, you've got adequate water, not too much, not too little. Typically, if we've got those components, we can manipulate other things and meet the meet the needs and, and desires of lake owner based on what the objectives are. And, you know, we go in and we shape the, the basin, we add structure, we put in ditches, we build haunts, we, we design spillways that are that are conducive to the growing, you know, keeping the good water in and, and letting the excess water pass through. All those sorts of things all fall under kind of best management practices. And, and they really apply across the board, Brian, whether it's a, a small lake, a big lake, you name it. Yeah, and, and, and it's a great, a great point that you that you bring up right there is that you know it's it's not a, a fish can live anywhere so it's not really about creating the environment where the fish can thrive because you can with the right with fertilize with lime with stocking ratios with adding bait fish all those things that fish can thrive in any lake you want to talk about he can pretty much thrive yeah, I, like you three feet to, to yeah. 30 feet. It don't matter. But the point that I like that you bring up is it's not about, it's also as much or more about the fishability of that pond and creating those humps and the, and the structure where we can concentrate bass and catch them. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it comes down to. Can we catch them? And, you know, I, I, we get the question a lot, you know, how deep does my lake need to be? And the assumption and really it's just a, a misconception is that deeper is better. And, you know, I tell people uh, this story. We, we raise a lot of fish over in West Alabama. We've got 10 or 12 production lakes, throwout lakes. And obviously we want those lakes to be, to produce as many pounds of fish as we can because we're doing it commercially and growing more fish is, it means we can sell more fish. And so, you know, those lakes are average about four feet deep. Most of them don't have water over six feet deep anywhere in them. And there are reasons we do that in those lakes. And I'm not suggesting that's ideal for every lake, but you know we want to be able to pull a net through them and harvest fish. And deep water makes that more challenging. And a lot of bottom contour makes that more challenging. So we build fish bowls. You know, they're shallow. There's nothing on the bottom. There's no structure. There's no cover. And the fish thrive there same time if i went out to those lakes and wanted to go fishing one spot's the same as, as the next there's nowhere that these fish are apt to be there's nowhere to concentrate them to make them easier to target to catch them so obviously that's not ideal in a recreational fishing lake and, and we understand that all too well yeah and you know i went over yeah it was south louisiana texas border with a buddy of mine and we went to a place that was a they a friend of his owned it and he invited us to come but it's a payfish place uh, for trophy bass and it was just like you're describing it's a different topography obviously than we have where it's just flat i mean they don't they don't even know what a hill looks like and so it's just totally completely flat down there and all these lakes he had several different lakes full of trophy bass but they were none of them were over five foot deep and they were just dug out rectangular shape and the only place that you could really try to to fish or identify you know a place where we could you know concentrate on fishing was was grass around the bank because the the middle of the lake was all the same there was no difference and it was really it kind of shows you you know you don't have to have deep water to to raise big fish but it sure is nice to have some contour in there and some things that concentrate the bass. No, no doubt about it. And, and we end up spending as much time uh, in terms of the, in the construction phase focusing on that part of it as we do anything else. Again, these best management practices, the, the spillway design, the, the minimum depth, the slope of the, of the banks, the slope of the front side of the dam, the slope of the back side of the dam – all these technical components, the proper way to core a dam to keep it from leaking, all, all these technical pieces, they're, they're a given. I mean, those are best management practices. We want to apply those across the board. The creative part of it is how do we take this 
this canvas, this basin, and make it angler friendly. And, uh, and that's a lot of fun. And there's a lot of things you can do to accomplish that. Again, every site's different. And so you, you might do one thing on one lake because it's feasible and cost effective. And, you know, you might have to take a different approach on a different one for the same reason. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be fun to be able to do that. That's, that's a pretty cool part of your job you get to do. What's your advice with somebody who has got timberland and, you know, the, the basin that they're going to be filling up with water is nothing but trees. Is there, is there a certain guideline that you like to say, hey, we need to take this out or we need to push this in piles and create some brush piles or, hey, call the forester and get him to come in here and, and, and sell some of this timber? Yeah, I mean, as a general rule, Brian, I would say we would steer people toward removing most of the standing timber. I'm just going to throw some numbers out there. Let's say we got a 20-acre lake that we're going to build, and it's solid timber. You know, we might leave a couple of acres in spots, maybe two or three different spots, total a couple of acres in some standing timber, just because it's unique. It creates some different habitats, waterfowl habitat. It looks cool, and you know. A lot of folks like that, but as a general rule, we would probably encourage people to remove the majority of that timber because it gives us a lot more flexibility in terms of what we do in the basin. And, you know, we take that timber, if it's not marketable, it's still useful. And in cases like that, we're going to use that timber to create all sorts of habitat. We're going to windrow it. We're going to make piles of it. We're going to take the root balls and bump them together and, and put them on a hump or on a shelf or a bench that we build on one bank. We're going to line the line them along, keep, you know, use them to line the, the natural creek channel if there's a natural creek channel in the basin. But really what it comes down to is, is what the objectives of the lake owner. Look, we've been involved in projects where folks said, I want to leave all the standing timber. You know, it, it probably creates more headache down the road than folks would realize. We try to educate people about kind of what you're going to be dealing with if you do that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's personal preference. We've got other folks that say, I don't want to see anything sticking out of the water even an inch. So, you know, it. some of that comes down to personal preference. I would think, Norman, that it kind of, you know, that person that wants to leave all the standing timber, you know, if I pull up to a to a lake and I see all this standing timber in it, you know, your first reaction is like, oh, that looks really freaking good. That looks that looks good. But then it's almost exactly the opposite, but the same as that that five foot lake that doesn't have any structure in it. And it's all the same. If you have a whole lake that's nothing but standing timber, the fish can be anywhere, and you're really you're hitting. Yeah, you're hit, hitting the nail on the head, no doubt about it. You're not you concentrating the fish anywhere. Or if you leave right. certain That's spots, right. then, yeah. Yeah, what we know about fish is that they will tolerate almost any condition when it comes to lots of cover, lots of habitat, little bit of cover, little bit of habitat, to absolutely nothing. I mean, they'll, they'll survive and even thrive in all those conditions. But what we know for sure is that if we add habitat, cover, structure they'll use it so you know i've never personally asked a fish if they like <laughs> cover but i'm assuming based on the behavior that they do they certainly utilize it and for good reason i mean predators use it as as ambush points largemouth bass are ambush predators if they can hide behind something in something uh underneath something and ambush their prey that's what they prefer to do so they're going to do it same way with you know, forage, they, they utilize that cover to, to hide and get away from the predator. So if it's available, they're going to take advantage of it. Absolutely. And that's exactly why those fish in that those lakes in South Louisiana were using that shoreline vegetation because that's basically all the cover they all have. They have. They, well, they, that's, that's right. And, you know, we had a, I had a guy uh, uh, from, from Gunnersville on the show that, and we were we were talking about kind of uh, how to locate bass on, uh, on on lakes and kind of what to look for, and and he painted a real good picture. And you kind of did the same thing right there. Is he was like, you know, imagine a, a African 
not jungles, not the right word for it, but Sahara with, with lions and zebras and wildebeest and all that, that line is not sitting out in the broad opening, just hoping something's going to run by him. Yeah. He's hiding behind a bush. He's hiding behind a hill or a ridge or a hump, or he's finding some strategic location to set up so that when the prey comes by, he can ambush it. And that's the same thing a bass is doing. You just have to find those places or, like you said, create those places. That is the preferred behavior. That's their instinctively. That's what, that's what they do. You know, that, that's a, a bass is broadly defined as an ambush predator. They, they're not particularly super fast like a, like a tuna in the, in the open water. They're not, uh, you know, they don't have gigantic teeth. They don't have a big sword or bill on the end of their head like a billfish to, to go stun prey in the open water, big schools. I mean, they're built to, they're camoed, they're green and black, and they blend in, and they, they'll even change their color a little bit to fit in with the environment. They hide and they wait for something to swim. Uh, close enough to them that they can reach out there and snatch it. There you that's go. What they, certainly what they got for, you know. That's good stuff, man. Well, awesome segment. I, I love that. I'm just going to say, just, there's so much to the topic of lake construction, and you just have to find that starting point. And the starting point is, let's take a look at the topo map. Let's take a look at the soil map. Let's take a look at the up and down in the same drainage that you're talking about. Let's see if it's feasible to build a lake and uh, and then kind of go from there. And and in most cases, the answer is, yeah, we can figure out a way to do it. And so, you know, that's what we do. Yeah, that's right. So, guys, if y'all listen, if you're interested in building a, a, a lake on your, on your place or you're looking at a piece of property maybe to purchase to put one on and you just kind of got that question in your mind of is it going to be feasible, is it going to be a, the proper place to place that can handle a lake or a pond, or give Norman and, and Southeastern Pond Management a call and uh, they can come out and, and assess your property and, and, man, put a plan together to, to get this thing done so that me and him can come out there and fish in your lake one day, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you keep all the keys. You keep all the keys to all the lakes, right? So we can always That's get in. Right. <laughs> well, if Norman, if somebody wants to uh, to contact you uh, and talk about this, no matter what it is, whether pond management, whether it's stocking or uh, adding some bait fish or liming or whatever the case may be, what's what's the best way for him to contact you, buddy? Yeah, I'll make it simple. Uh, give you my cell phone number. You can call this number or text message me, 205-288-1371. And they can always visit our website and get in touch with us that way. That's sepond.com. Good stuff, man. Well, hey, Norman, we appreciate it. Love having you on here, buddy. I always look forward to this segment and, uh, and your knowledge and hearing from you. So, uh, hey, be careful going down to the coast and go out and uh, catch some snapper, man. Load the boat up and bring me back a few fillets. I can throw some blacking and seasoning on them. I'll do it, buddy. Good talking to you. All right, man. Take care. All right, guys. That is going to wrap up segment number one. So let's take a few minutes and hear from one of our sponsors. If you're fortunate enough to own a lake or a pond, then I know you want to get the most out of it as possible. We all want to manage and grow big deer on our place, so why not grow the biggest, most healthy fish possible as well? Give Norman a call at Southeastern Pond Management at 205-288-1371 or just look them up, southeasternpondmanagement.com, and these guys know what they're doing when it comes to managing ponds and lakes. So uh, if that's what you need, reach out to them. All right, another great segment from Norman with Southeastern Pond Management. Love having that guy on here and listening to his knowledge because uh, he's got plenty of it. So let's get right to segment two. Guy I love having on here from the Tennessee River, Smith Lake, Pickwick, all up and down through there, uh, Captain David Allen. David, how you doing, brother? Doing good, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing good, man. You been? Uh, how's things going on the water? Been going good, just trying to stay cool by all means. It's been pretty hot these last few weeks. Man, I'm going to tell you, summertime got here. Uh, it was a little delayed getting here, it seemed like, but when it got here, it got here. Yes, it did. I know I was enjoying those 80-degree days, and all of a sudden we got hit with these 92 and 93s of the heat index and the 
the over a hundred, and I was like, oh, here we go, <laughs> man. It, it 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 not only makes it makes it tougher fishing sometimes, but it sure makes it tougher on the fisherman. Yes, it does. Lots of lots of hydration going on. Absolutely. Well, what are the work. make it work? That's right. But what are the what are the fish doing? Where you you been? Uh, where you been fishing lately? Uh, here that I had a trip today and a couple of this last week or two. Uh, most fish I've been chasing have still been offshore. I'm doing the good old Tennessee River thing of getting in their summer summer little nest. They get out there on the offshore drop. You know, it's not great right now. I mean, we're catching. You know. You'll catch a dozen to two dozen fish, you know, on a six or eight hour trip. But a lot of my trips have been doing have been doing sonar trips. You know, some days if they turn the current on and we get some water pushing through the system, you'll get some better bites. But fish are just really pressured right now. Like today I did a sonar trip and I think in thinking six hours while we were out there, I think we caught fifteen bass. But now granted we weren't, you know, trying to catch a ton. We were doing a lot of educating on the electronics part side of it. But uh, you know, I did have one day last week, uh it was hotter than pretty hot and we had to dodge a couple storms but we got out there and after we had one of those good rainstorms come through we had them biting and we you know got into catching you know 30 or so bass and catching some quality mixed in that's one thing that happens with this time of year is it's not necessarily a numbers game but it turns into better quality uh bites for me that's good man yeah you know and you talk about the electronics and, and i love what you do as far as it's taking people out and that's a service that you offer it's 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 guiding people on how to use their electronics and how to find fish and use them the right way but the one thing that you know i think i think on last week's show uh, it's last week or the week before you know we were talking about how as wonderful as these electronics are um the the negative side of it is there's no secrets out there anymore and so like no. you said you get a lot of pressure on these fish because the, everybody finds them or a lot more exactly. people and find them yeah and it's and that's one reason like i've seen just from when i since i've moved down here in, in 2008 to now you know once i kind of figured out some of these offshore schools and kind of how they acted you know used to back when i was in college these offshore ledge fish wouldn't leave till mid-september Mm-hmm. You could catch them from mid-May all the way to mid to end of September. Now it's getting to where those fish are getting so pressured now. They start leaving, you know, start leaving now. Like I've noticed just from last week to this week, I went from having 30 to 40 schools of fish. I and mean, when I call a school, it's not like 10 or 15, but like 50 or more bats. Right. Um, that I can see on the graph. I had, you know, 30 or 40 of them schools. You know, depending on the day, they're not always on the same spot every day, but some, you know, generally in the general area, I had 30 to 40 schools. Well, it's like today we went out there and scanned and I only had seven group, you know, schools of fish. Now, granted, I found some little pods of five or 10 here and there that were still hanging out there, but like an actual true, what I call a school, I only had seven places that I saw that still had a school of fish still there. So they're on the move. Um, we're starting to get in that transition a little bit. Uh, like last week, we had a giant mayfly hatch, and they literally blotted out the sky. There were so many of them. I had a couple of buddies that went out fishing some night tournaments, and their boat was literally slapped full of mayflies. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, I, and a lot of times I'll see sometimes these mayfly hatches, you'll see it, it'll pull some of these fish back towards the bank because there's so much life going on underneath the mayfly hatch. You got right. the dad going up there and eating them. You got the bluegill eating them, which they're for. Bass are going to Bass are going to fall because there's plentiful of food for them to eat up there, and it's not hard to get to it. Um, so I think that's what happened to a couple, you know, a lot of our schools that were, you know, around where those mayfly hatches were going, they pulled up to the bank to capitalize on that easy food and get some easy forage out of it. So a lot of our fish pulled up because of that. But also I start seeing with the more people get into these electronics, the more pressure these fish see, and they start leaving these ledges quicker because they get tired of getting messed with. Yeah. 10 or 15 boats idling over them a day and, trying to fish for them they start to really get educated quickly you know i've had a lot of people then you kind of touched on it already but i've had a lot of callers this year saying man it just seems like the ledge bite wasn't there this year like it has been in the past you know the fish came out for a little while then they went back and and a lot of people have already shut down the ledge fishing Uh, did you kind of notice a difference this year Uh, and and if so I, i don't know what causes it well, a lot of it I see, it's just fishing pressure. It's anything. It's like, you know, when these fish get below the horseshoe, and you've got 40 boats in there chasing these fish in the horseshoe. They'll get off the normal jig, Ned rig, you know, shake your head. They'll get off that quick um, just because they've seen it so much. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of what it's happened on any lake you see now. I mean, one thing that's happened the last few years, there's such an influx of fishermen. There's more fishermen 
out in their own boats fishing than ever before. So these fish get educated quicker. Um, we're used to, I mean, when I first moved down here, you go put in at Waterloo, Alabama, if you saw more than five boats, that was a busy day between Natchez Trace Bridge and J.P. Coleman. That was a busy day, mainly because there was no cell service, but also people are getting more and more confident to come off the bank and offshore fish. And it's a good thing, but I think earlier in the year, it was normal ledge fishing. We'd go out there from the end of May to 1st of July, I'd go out there and we were going to catch 50 or more bass. It wasn't hard, but they just get educated quicker. And I think one thing is, is people that haven't done this a long time, if they go out there and pull in a school and just don't instantly start catching them, it's not the normal ledge fishing thing where they're dumb, stupid. They just bite like crazy. It's not like that anymore. You kind of got to pull in there with a purpose and kind of understand them fish by just looking at that graph. And that's one thing I teach is try to, when you look at them on that graph, are these going to bite or are they not? Do I waste my time standing up on the trolling motor or do I not? You can How do you, what are you looking the, for? When, I mean, what are you looking for to go, okay, this school right here will bite? A lot of it's just the positioning on the ledge or the drop itself, um, how their, their stance is almost. A lot of it's just where they're at, how are they spaced out, how are they positioned to know are they going to bite right? You know, if they're real sucked to the bottom and not real grouped up, they're probably not going to be real active. If you pull, and I call it seeing them like a beehive. They're real stirred up, and they're grouped together and kind of staggered on top of each other a little bit, but they're still horizontally set up, and they're staggered a little bit. I know those are in the position to feed because they're active. They're moving around. They're not just laying there. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times when I go over and with, with side and down scan, I can look over and I can say, hey, these are going to bite their setup, or ah, we might pick a couple of these out, you know. And a lot of that's just time on the water, seeing that over and over and over. You start seeing it over and over. And I try to teach that to people where they can – nitpick what they fish now granted this time of year if you see bass you better fish them because they're not every but earlier in the year you can be a little more picky about ones you stand up and throw on and ones you don't so man that's that's that's, that's good, good stuff to know yeah absolutely well how are you with a with the pressure that that that's out there now and and, and like you said there's more you know the as bad as COVID has been and it looks like it's getting that way again you know yes, it kind of sent more people to the lake and uh, so there's been definitely an increase in fishing pressure. How does that affect your lure, lure choice? Has it changed it? it? It has. You have to throw different or fish things differently or throw different baits that aren't getting thrown as much because either they be more off the wall or just something that not everybody throws it the same way. Like me right now, most of my fish are either coming on a three-quarter or one-ounce scrounger with a uh, jerky jay on the back of it or uh, taking a true bass swim bait and cutting the paddle tail off and putting on there, or it's on a, a bait that I've released this year, the hair jig that we call the shuttlecock, the true bass. That's what I'm catching a lot of them on, just because it's such a subtle bait. And a lot of bait selection stuff, I try to tell people, what's the one thing everybody thinks of when they go to a ledge? They think of a, a crankbait, a mag spoon, real aggressive stuff that you can catch them fast on. And what happens is, like, with a crankbait right now, granted, probably greatest ledge bait there is made because when you do get them to bite it you catch them quick but mm-hmm. when you pressure them with it they get off of it it's a very aggressive tactic so a lot of times these guys pull up with a crankbait first thing throw it in and they scatter them or they just it just pushes them off of it they don't want it as much because they've seen it so many times that that crankbait they just won't bite it because it's a very aggressive tactic where with me with that hair jig or scrounger it's not making a bunch of vibration. It's not digging all over across the bottom. It's a very subtle shad presentation bait. And on these ledge fish, they're more shad oriented than they are crayfish or, or anything like that. They're eating shad mainly. Now, they will still eat a jig and stuff. And I do catch some on a jig. But here the last few days, it's been either a hair jig or a scrounger for me. Like what a is a scrounger? A scrounger is a, it's like a swim bait head, but it has a plastic bill on it. It almost acts like a chatterbait, but it's a, a stationary bill. It's not jointed like a chatterbait. Mm-hmm. And it just wobbles back and forth and gives it a little bit of vibration like a shad moving and gives it that shad presentation action. It just It's like you put a fluke on the back and it gives that fluke action instead of just real, you know, coming straight through the water. Right. And it's a deadly ledge tactic. I use a Davis bait, Elite Shaky Fish, and it's to me it's the best. The bill's made the best, the hooks are the best, and they're just consistent. Nice. Yeah, that's so, good. But, yeah. but the hair jig's been my big thing. Which granted, bait I came out with, I'm gonna throw it like crazy. Sure, it's a very subtle. The very a hair jig in general, it's been around for years. It's old school. I just took some things I liked about a hair jig and made it the way I want it to, and then 
it kind of everybody started wanting one, so we started producing it. And uh, it's a very subtle tactic because it, it's like fishing a giant crappie jig, is what I tell people. It's not a, a fast, high speed power tactic. It looks like it, but it's really a very subtle finesse tactic almost because you burn it up real fast but it falls pendulum style like with a crappie where when you reel it up if you keep it on a tight line it swings back towards you towards the bottom so it's very subtle it's not a fast fall it's only a five eight ounce bait so it falls very slow and just looks like almost a, a crippled shad or a shad just gliding back to the bottom those bass can't stand it their dna will not let them not hit it and they knock the fire out of it so how do you fish it are you fishing it like uh, are you keeping it on the bottom or are you trying to fish I, it above? Uh, what kind of presentation do you use with that? The hair jig presentation I use is I'll throw it out as far as I can into the school and I'll let it, you know, sink down to the bottom. Once it contacts bottom, I hold my rod at about a one to two o'clock position. In other words, kind of up a little bit, not way up, but just up where my rod's up to keep the line, you know, kind of above the water. And I'll give it about four to five reel cranks, you know, just pretty steady and just to bring it up off the bottom and I'll stop and I'll let it fall on a a pretty stiff line not like super stiff but just like a semi-stiff line where my line will let it swing to the boat in other words instead of it going straight down it swings i got you to the boat you're not manipulating the lift with your rod you're not reeling down and lifting mm-hmm. your rod up you're leaving it pretty much mm-hmm. in the same stationary position and you're using the reel to lift it and then it swings back yes sir just like crappie fishing whenever you took an old bobby garland and shot under a dock and you reel it up and let it just let the line let it swing back like a pendulum and they hit it on the fall, and when they hit it, they hit it with great veracity. <laughs> hit, hit it with vengeance. They're about to take the rod out of your hand. Uh-huh. That's it's awesome. A fun, it's my favorite way to catch them just because it's such a violent bite, but it, it's a tactic. I've been able to catch them, and I've kind of made it a goal since even before putting it on the market, just prototyping it. I have to catch one every day I go out there on it. <laughs> even when they don't want it, I make one bite it. You make one bite it. Well, what's, and I've, what's I've, the name I've, of that jig again, and where can people get it? It is. It is the True Bass Shuttlecock. It's on uh, Perkins Outdoors here in Florence has them. Uh, Tackle Warehouse is carrying them. Uh, there's a couple places near Gunnersville. I think GTO Tackle has them. And there's a place near Chattanooga that's got them. There's a couple places, but the best place to get it, trueswimbaits.com on there. And it's called the David Allen Shuttlecock. Looks like a badminton shuttlecock going through there when you throw it. <laughs> I like it, man. I like it. Yeah. Well, uh, I have a feeling when some people listen to the show, you they, they, they're going to be ordering some of those. So that's a good thing, man. Well, you know, if somebody is going to come out and, and, and fish this weekend, you know I got to get a tip of the day from you. So so what tip would you give them? I would say right now if you're going to start early in the morning, the mayfly hatch has kind of died back out, which is kind of odd we had one this late, but I would maybe get on some you know, shallower gravel banks um, early in the morning. Um, and go out and see where you can find these shad pulled up overnight because a lot of these fish are actually with as hot as it is are starting to feed at night um, mm-hmm. so maybe if you're going to go out in the morning go get up on some shallower you know transition gravel banks you know stay off or flat some way out off the bank maybe throw some top water spinnerbait chatterbait first thing in the morning so you can get in some of this you know summertime early morning top water um, later on in the day you know on pickwick right now you kind of got two options you can either Go do the normal ledge fishing thing. Put your turn the graphs on. Go scan some offshore humps till you see those tic tacs on the screen and fish them. Or you can also go and, and there's a little bit of grass left, which is weird with Pickwick. You know, times we talked before, there's more grass than we'd ever seen on Pickwick, and it's kind of actually dwindled out. I think a lot of it just went through a cycle from the floods up and down to them dropping the water and all the weird weather we've had. It's washed a lot of our hydrilla out. There's not as much as there was, but there is a lot of coontail still left. But uh, also go fish these grass flats, find that coontail, um, throw some topwater over to chatterbait, maybe even take a ribbon tail worm Texas rig with a lightweight, hop through the grass and catch them like that. So you kind of got three patterns there you can chase. You can go do some early morning topwater, you know, shad action uh, on the bass chasing those shad in the morning. Then you can go fish some grass with some topwater and chatterbait and plastics. And then if that don't work, go offshore deep fishing and see if you can't get in on some of them when they turn on the current from TVX. Man, that's that's great stuff, man. What a great tip. And, you know, if somebody, if a listener wants to come, two things, e- either come get in the boat with you and and, and learn how to use their electronics uh, and get the most out of it, or if they just want to come catch a lot of fish um, and, and learn uh, Pickwick and, and, and some of those areas and, and how you're catching fish on them, what's the best way for them to contact you? 
Uh, the best way to reach me is to uh, get on davidallenfishing.com and just hit the contact button, shoot me an email through there. Or you can uh, look me up on social media, on Facebook or Instagram at David Allen Fishing and shoot me a DM through there. Or on any of those sites there, you can find my phone number at 270-205-9380. Man, that's great, buddy. I appreciate you being on. And, and uh, man, you just got so much insight, especially on Pickwick and, and those and those lakes up there. And um, always love having you on the show. Guys, go out there and order you a David Allen hair jig and uh and, and hit some of those ledges hey we appreciate you buddy uh look forward to having you back on again soon stay safe out there you too sir all right thanks david Thank all you. right guys let's take just a minute and hear from one of our sponsors BNM Pole Company is the leading manufacturer of crappie poles in the world today. Their product line has evolved to include top quality gear for anglers who fish for more than panfish, including their Sam Super Salt Series designed for shallow water fishing for trout and redfish. These rods will deliver everything you need to catch these inshore fish at a great price. The genuine Portuguese cork handle feels great in your hand, and the exposed blank touch system will add unbelievable sensitivity. Stainless guys are durable and flow smoothly check out their whole lineup at bnmpoles.com welcome back guys let's get right to segment three love having this next guest on down in you fall west point report with clayton bass what's going on my friend oh not much just getting off work and getting ready for trips the rest of the week i hear you man you got a lot of them booked up for the week huh uh, i got four the next three days oh my goodness man good for you you gonna be you gonna uh, you better have some suntan, some suntan oil on, man. Lotion on. Uh, it's 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 kind of hot out there right now. Yeah, it's smoking. I pretty much have permanent coon eyes twelve months out of the year, so it's just another day. <laughs> it's another day. Well, how's how's things in Eufaula? People are booking trips. And my fish must be biting, so that's a good thing. They're biting. We're catching a bunch of fish, a uh, bunch in that two to two and a half pound range, and then you'll mix in some threes and fours. We're missing that real big bite, those five and six pounders right now, but it's still catching a bunch of good quality. I mean, we're still 40, 50 fish a day. Just, I mean, good time out there. Man, that's great. I mean, 40, 50 fish a day. I, I mean, that's, you know, with the reports that's that we're doing. That's a six-hour trip. That's awesome, man. That is, that's amazing. And, and I would say that's definitely ahead of what a lot of lakes are doing right now around the state. Because I know you. And I know what you're fishing. You allege you fishing out on the ledges and drops, and you fall is 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 awesome for that. A lot of the guys though, they're 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 saying that the fish are already kind of pulling back off and headed back to the shallows a little bit, and the and the ledge bite really isn't as good as it's maybe been in the past. But it sounds like it's still on for you. Yeah, they stay out there. I mean, you, like you just said, you fall is known for ledge fishing and offshore. I mean, it don't matter. 12 months out of the year, 99% of the time, tournaments are won on that pond offshore. That's just the way it fishes. That's where the big ones like to be. Not saying you can't go up shallow and catch them right now because you can definitely go up there and flip, uh, flip and frog and do all that fun shallow power fishing stuff and catch them. But you can also stay out there in that 20, 25-foot stuff and catch a bunch of them too. Is that, where they, are they, is that where they are now? Are they still schooled up 20, 25-foot? Yeah, they're still out there in that 20, 25-foot stuff. You're liable to go over a little wad of them one day, and they won't be there for two or three days, and they'll show back up. But you'll go over another place that they normally get, and there'll be some fish there one day, and, you know, kind of the same thing. They'll disappear and come back, you know. So you kind of just got to stay up with them and have enough places to idle over, you know, your lower ants. And, you know, eventually you might take you three or four to start out the morning, but you'll idle over a little wad, and you're trying to kind of get what you're doing when you pull up there and you start whacking them. So they don't complain too much when you start idling around and riding that's right. Well, you know, and, and you're like the last guest that we had on. I mean, you you don't just guide the fishing trips. You guide the electric, you know, teach people how to use their electronics. And you being a, a professional at that and, and having the knowledge that you do, do you ride over fish? And we was discussing this in the last segment, so I'm bringing it back up. Do you ride over a school every now and then and look at them and go, okay, they set up wrong. These fish here ain't going to hit. And then you I'll ride, ride over, right up. I'll ride over them every time. Like, I'll, cause at Eufaula, they might be set up 30 yards from where they were the day before. And if you're sitting there casting 30 yards away, you're not getting bit and the school's sitting right there, get, you know, waiting to get caught. 
So yeah. I love them every time. The only time I don't pull up and I love them is if they're in like that 12, 13 feet and shallower. I'll pull up there and just fish for a little bit. But if they're deeper than that, like that 16 to 18, and they're, oh, I love them every time. Do you sometimes see the fish set up, though, in a way where you're like, okay, these fish aren't aggressive. They're not in a feeding mode. Let's go to another yeah, school. You'll see, you'll see some that are suspended off the bottoms, but I'd probably say 95% of the time when you see them like that, there's still going to be some on the bottom that will eat. Even in a non-aggressive school where a bunch of them are up, there will still be some on that bottom where they will eat. And sometimes when you pull up there, you'll get one or two of those ones that are on the bottom ready to eat. You'll get them fired up, and the other ones will settle mm. down and go down and get ready to eat too. That makes sense. Well, you know, this time of year, summer pattern, are you still throwing uh, more aggressive baits to these fish? Or are you kind of slow things down this time of year? Or does that change for you throughout the year? And I mean, kind of what are you doing right now with lure presentation? I got a rotation of baits that I go through, especially with clients. With clients, I can put a drop shot with a seven-inch worm on there, and we're going to catch them every time we go out there. But, like, tournament-wise, I have a rotation of baits that I go through that, I mean, when you first pull up to a school, you want to start at the head of the school and throw the biggest bait. I mean, I like throwing a Jinko trimmer shad. That's just my go-to bait. That or, you know, a CD25 or something like that, a big plug. But then I'll rotate down through that, through a preacher jig, down to a big worm, and then drop shot. You know, just probably about eight baits that I rotate through on a tournament day. But when I pull up there with a client or something, we pull up there with a drop shot, with a big worm on a drop shot, and you get bit immediately. Why do you start at the head of the – when you're talking about the head of the, the, the school, you're talking about up the ledge, the I'm assuming, cur- the, the up, upper side. The up current the up current side, that's normally where your bigger, more aggressive fish are going to be oriented in that school. It's going to be your, your better quality. Uh, that's, that's interesting. I never heard that before. That's good, that's good stuff to know. They so just you, don't want to slide back at that school and compete with all the two-pounders. They'd rather be at the beginning of it where they got the first dibs on the first bait coming by. There you go. That makes sense. It makes total sense. What about the, are you, are you fishing shallow at all? Are you pretty, uh, you pretty much just, just staying offshore? Are you, you kind of going shallow early? Uh, I've, I've had some clients uh, that they've wanted to fish shallow and we've gone and caught them shallow. I mean, mainly catching them shallow, we're catching them on a frog and flipping. That's pretty much it. This time of year, I get some clients, you know, that they're not, they don't fish that much. And I can't go put an ounce and a half weight in some guy's hand that don't flip that much and expect him to go pull them out for match. You know, it's just not going to happen. Right, right. So you kind of yeah. have to you have to see the skill level of your client, you know, and kind of adjust your plan to that. Yeah. Well, these fish stay schooled up through the fall and, and on these ledges, or at some point do they kind of start changing their pattern a little bit? Uh, a little bit. You'll start having a little bit more of a creek bite. But with that being said, or they'll be instead of catching them out there on the main river ledges, you'll start finding more schools on the creek ledges, and you'll be able to still catch them in schools, but they just won't be out there in that 25-foot stuff. They might be move up like that 15-foot in the creeks. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, when you're, when you're looking at these electronics and you're riding over these schools, different schools are different sizes, obviously. You know, you have some small schools and some big schools. I mean, is there – kind of a certain size school that you're looking for i mean i I mean obviously the bigger the better right Uh, more fish and more bites you can get especially with your clients in the boat but i mean how big are the schools you're normally fishing uh they're anywhere from five fish to 40 somewhere right in there with that being said i like with clients and stuff we'll pull up and fish those big wads of them you know those 40 45 fish ones but generally your bigger fish are going to be in like those five to say eight or 10 fish schools, those are going to be your big ones. They would, like I said earlier, they want to get away from those little smaller, you know, two pounders. They want to be left alone. They want to be kind of out there by themselves. And you'll see that throughout the summer, you'll have some of those 40 fish schools that those big ones started, but you'll idle over those and they'll, they'll be there and you'll catch those, but you're liable to go a hundred yards down the ledge or 50 yards down the ledge. And you'll see a little wad of, you know, five or 10, well, everybody else wants to fish those 40, 45 fish. I want to fish those five or 10 because those five or 10 are normally going to be your big ones. This broke off from that big school to be by themselves. Uh, that's a great point and great advice right there. Yeah. So is there any color that seems to matter right now or when you're fishing? I mean, uh, these schools, does, does, does color really matter or is it more presentation or just being on the school? It's more presentation to them. 
um, we've been getting some rain down here. I mean, I've been sticking with more natural colors. And then, like, with the rain, I've got, like, a tropical shad or something like that with it. Most times throughout the summer, that water stays pretty clear, that pretty uh, green color. So you want to stay with more natural stuff. But the main thing is, I mean, if you pull up on a school and you're not getting them bit on, like, a 45 or something, go around them and try throwing all the way through the school or either get on top of the ledge and throw it out deep and bring it back up to them. It just depends on your angles. Angles being more to me than anything. And so when you're talking about angles, I would think that probably, you know, those the fish are setting up on this ledge to ambush the prey, ambush whatever they're feeding on, or set up in an ambush position. Maybe it's the current that they're, that they're setting up. So you kind of want to bring that, your bait into the school with the of current. fish the way, with the current, right? Right. But, I mean, sometimes when they're not moving current, I mean, I've had it where you can sit out there in that deep water and throw out there to them. I mean, you know, I mean, I know I'm throwing the fish and not get a bite, not get a bite, and I'll readjust the boat and I'll get up there on top of it and throw out deep and bring it up to them and it's one every cast. That's crazy. And that was my next question. Do you rather do you rather set up shallower and throw deep or rather set up deep and show, throw shallower? I'd rather set up deep. Yeah, and throw into the scope. And throw it in the school and bring it back out. That's good. And you'll have have that school reposition sometimes, like if you go to catching a bunch, and I've got a bunch of pictures on my active target that I'll be posting soon, but we'll be sitting there catching them, catching them, catching them, and I'll look on that active target, and when you catch one, it'll bring two or three with it. So when you catch five or six, you got a bunch of them that came with it, and you can look on that active target. They'll be all around the boat, and you just drop it down in front of the boat and catch them. And catch them. Yeah, they're just following it. That's good, man. Hey, well, that's, I appreciate you getting on. And, you know, before I let you go, I got to get a tip of the day. So what's your tip of the day going to be, Clayton? Tip of the day for Lake Eufaula is book a trip now. Because if you want to come catch them, we're catching a bunch of fish and you need to give me a call. Uh, hey, can't get a better tip than that. I mean, he's telling you what to do right there, guys. If they want to give you a call, that's my next question. How do they get up with you? Uh, you can give me a call at 334 334- three one zero eight three three eight or either just look at my web uh website lake you follow fishing guide.com and also in about two and a half weeks uh you can check on my facebook lake you follow fishing guy collecting bats i'm gonna be doing a electronics class down at the go fish education center in perry georgia if anybody's interested in coming hey and that's what that's what i was fixing to say too in, in closing you the segment out is is guys if y'all want to catch a bunch of fish in the eufaula uh right now then you you know book a book a trip with clayton but if you're also a guy down there that's that's got new electronics wanting to learn electronics get better at what you've got i can't think of anybody that that knows that stuff better than you do um so give clayton a call go catch some fish with him or or get in the boat and learn how to use your electronics he, he'll help you out either way i guarantee you all right, buddy. Well, I appreciate it, man. Stay safe out there. Love having you on and look forward to having you on again soon, my friend. No problem. Anytime. All right, buddy. Take care. Yes, sir. All right, guys. Another great segment. And let's hear from another great sponsor. At BucksIslands.com, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, bow rider style boats, new and used motors, as well as kayaks for sale. They love trade-ins, which provide a steady stream of used boats. They can rig your boat at their 18 Bay Service Department or ship your new motor anywhere in the United States. They provide boat service on all kinds of boats, even if they weren't purchased from Brooks Island. They have factory trained and certified technicians, so visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside, Alabama 35907, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. Guys, another great show today. Thank y'all all for listening. That is going to wrap us up for this week. If you're enjoying this podcast, please, as always, take just a minute, subscribe, rate, and leave us a review wherever you listen to it. If you would like to us to email you the show, we'll do it every single week. All you have to do is text the word fishing to 314-665-1767, and we will email you the show each and every week. As always, thank you for listening. Look forward to talking to you guys next week. 
This week's Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report was brought to you by Sun South. If your to-do list requires work on the land, come see us at Sun South. We listen to your needs so you get the right equipment and the right implements at a price you can afford. For John Deere equipment sales, parts, and service, come see us at Sun South. Equipment for those that do. And brought to you by Photonist Defense, PD Pro Ultralight Ultra Compact Night Vision Systems. Simply the best in-class night vision system ever built. Contact us at PhotonistDefense.com to learn more. Photonist Defense, Masters of Darkness. And brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Become a better southern hunter and angler and pick up your copy today wherever fine magazines are sold or save a bundle online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. And by BM Pole Company is more than just panfish. Check out their Sam Super Salt series designed for shallow water fishing for trout and redfish at bnmpoles.com. And brought to you by Bucks Island is a family-owned and operated business since 1948. At BucksIslands.com, you can check out the full list of inventory from new and used bass, pontoon, bow rider style boats, new and used motors, as well as kayaks for sale. Give them a call at 256-442-2588. And brought to you by Brian Sand with National Land Realty. You already trust me with your fishing report, so trust me to help you find or sell that next piece of property as well. Just give me a call at 601-383-2344.